Hey there, folks. Just want to jump on Mike here before we start the show proper and just give a quick shout out to our sponsors on this episode. And we have actually two sponsors for this episode. So real quick, I just want to give a shout out to, of course, our friends at the Criterion Collection for all the cool Blu-rays and new releases they're putting out. Also, their work on Filmstruck, if streaming is your jam. And can't also forget our friends at Arrow Video doing the same kind of awesome work with Blu-rays and new disc releases every month. Uh, Check back in here in a couple minutes. I will shout out a few new Blu-ray releases from this month of July for both those sponsors. Before we do start, we thank Criterion Collection and Arrow Video for their support. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to a special hold-up edition of Adjust Your Tracking. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and it's just me on the mic here to start. No Joe on this one. And I just wanted to uh, open things up here, and I just wanted to give a little context before I uh, let you dive into this episode. It's just another re-release of an older, uh, two older hold-up segments that we uh, recorded in the past, uh, specifically two episodes right in a row, episodes 107 and 108. This is before our uh, addition to the Playlist Podcast Network, for those of you keeping track at home. So yeah, we recorded these episodes uh, back in 2015, and the two uh, hold-up picks, it's, it's another one from me and one from Joe on this one. And they are The Beach, Danny Boyle's The Beach. That's my pick. And Joe's pick is 1986's Wisdom, the directorial debut of Emilio Estevez. So this is a really fun, uh, both of these are really fun to go back and listen to because we weren't exactly uh, super crazy about these movies on revisit or we had plenty of flaws to point out. So it sort of stands out in our, as of yet, uh, with our hold up editions where we usually end up finding something positive about these these older movies that we revisit. This is not so much the case. So I think there's a lot of fun to be had with that. But yeah, that's basically the deal for this for this episode is just going to drop you back into a few years time where we talked about these two movies and um, hopefully it, it will hold you over before we get that next AYT out, the next proper AYT episode, which is coming soon, I promise. We are working behind the scenes on getting that next episode out. So summer months are always a little tough for us here at AYT to find stuff worth talking about, but we're going to do it. So having said all that, uh, before we do drop you into uh, the episode, I just wanted to give one more shout out and a, and a glance at um, a couple of the releases from our sponsors on this episode. So the one really cool July release I'm looking to shout out for um, Criterion Collections Blu-ray releases would be El Sur, the 1983 Spanish film from director Victor Erich. I might be mispronouncing his name, but he directed The Spirit of the Beehive, another Criterion Collection release, and that movie is great. Very much looking forward to catching up on this one, El Sur. And from Arrow Video in in July, they have a couple that I need to shut out, and it is a New Zealand film called Vigil, which I know very little about, but sounds extremely interesting in a film I need to catch up on. And then there's Abel Ferreira's The Addiction, uh, one of his mid-90s movies. So we, again, we have to thank uh, our friends at Criterion Collection and Arrow Video for their support. 
Thank you for that. But now that we've done all the the necessary house cleaning, let's drop you into this episode. Going to start you with our chat on the beach first, and then right after that, we'll go into wisdom. So enjoy. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. Meeny, 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 meeny. Meeny, 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 meeny. Meeny, 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 meeny. Hold up. Wait a minute. Now just wait. My name is Richard. So what else do you need to know? Stuff about my family or where I'm from? None of that matters. Not once you cross the ocean and cut yourself loose. Looking for something more beautiful. Something more exciting. Yes, I admit something more dangerous so we're bringing back uh, another edition of hold up we alluded it to alluded to it on our last episode and it was it was my choice uh mm-hmm. this this time out and i chose danny Boyle's the beach which i did mention before it is uh adapted from the first novel by alex garland so correct uh, well hold up is a segment where we take movies that we love and which may be somewhat problematic in terms of how they were initially received, either by audiences or by critics. Something that it's not necessarily a guilty favorite because I don't know if you or I either believe in that. Exactly. But um, taking a movie that had a very distinct impact on us and then bringing it back up to you know uh, each other to act as a critical counterpoint to explore this problematic relationship we have with these movies <laughs> and find out like you know, how we truly feel about them. Exactly. We're going to get real, and this time we're going to get real about the beach. Yeah, and you've been you've been honest with me in the past that, like, you know, my one of my beloved kind of early choices was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and as nice as you were, you kind of, you didn't love the movie. Uh, <laughs> and I think that th- this is an interesting choice because um, I, I think we both probably felt similarly about it. Yes. Felt like this movie was unfairly maligned and that um, there there was a lot going for it. It was a strong movie. Um, But I had an interesting experience this time watching it. Oh, I need to know because I did too. (laughs) Did you? Okay. I'll put it this way and then I'll let you you go from there. Uh, I realized I haven't watched this movie in a while. (laughs) I watched it. It was streaming on Netflix like years ago. Okay. um, And I watched it. I think I was still in the haze of a kind of nostalgia. Like it must have been like around 2008 or something like that that I rewatched it because it came out in 2000 and you saw it when you were in high school right yeah I saw it a few times at the theaters actually okay so I think I still was just like you know how you you can have the sort of lack of you just don't have the same critical experience when you're in the haze of watching something as you remembered it you know you're like oh that was good wasn't that fun we watched that movie again and this time I was like, something snapped into place where I was like, what the, f- wait, what? Like something was just not working and clicking along with the same kind of pleasurable rhythms that I enjoyed the first few times I saw it. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because this is Danny Boyle's fourth feature. Yes. Yeah. And it's and, not uh, the one that he followed up Trainspotting. That was actually a life less ordinary. So yeah, which like, I think I saw shallow. I think I saw them sequentially. Like mm. I saw shallow grave, liked it, thought it was a, a decent kind of first feature Hitchcockian movie. Oh yeah. Trainspotting. I fucking loved saw it like 
five or six times in the theater. And it still holds up, dude. That's that yeah. is a that is a seminal '90s film that is gonna be great forever. I think. Yeah, it's it's got like, it's got a, an undeniable momentum, a yes. fucking incredible cast. It's <laughs> got this like crackling wit to it, and it's just like it. Yeah, it, it holds up. It's amazing. Um, and then a lifeless ordinary was one of the biggest clotheslines I've experienced <laughs> in terms of anticipating a mo- a next movie from a director. Yeah. Like I just did not understand where it was coming from in terms of its tone. And that's actually something I think it was one of my choices for love it or hate it in early segment, yes. which kind of mutated into this segment because <laughs> I hated it. Yep. And, and it's one that might be worth revisiting if I didn't hate it as much as I do. <laughs> Exactly. But like the beach seemed to be like, you know, on paper writing the course of Danny Boyle where it'd be like, oh, here, here we go. Okay. This is more thematically in line with stuff that I've liked from him. Great. Um, so it was a more adventurous choice for Leonardo DiCaprio, who was not the initial star of the movie. Yeah. It was originally, originally Ewan McGregor. Who he hasn't worked with since after having a falling out over this movie. I, I believe it, that was what happened. I think Boyle had Ewan McGregor already like essentially cast, but you know that I think Fox might have put the pressure on to to get a star like DiCaprio to make to make what I think they thought was difficult or challenging, you know, right material work or sell, you know. I yeah, mean, it's, DiCaprio is the biggest movie star in the world at this point, you know. Yeah. Two years after Titanic, or three years. So yeah, three years. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Let's. Do you want to start picking apart? Yeah, necessarily? yeah. I had a very similar. I, I so I watched this movie last night, and uh, so much of it doesn't work for me now. So interesting. The, yeah, it really. Um, I I will say it's. Here's the thing where I still feel it fits as a hold up choice because I almost kind of regretted saying I I love this movie and I want to you know put it up there as a hold up, but that's, yeah, this segment's going to work like that. Sometimes I realized I haven't watched this movie in a while. And it, to me is, and it, it had a hold to me, this movie I saw it in high school, but you know what it reminds me of is college. Like this was a cool movie in college. Yeah. And while I will say it, it's, it's overall still holds up better than say another movie that I thought was cool in college, uh, blow the Johnny Depp movie. I will never defend my blow. God, you thought that was cool. Yeah, dude. We, we, <laughs> we all did me and my, my buddies in college. We thought that movie rocked. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm putting it out there. Um, it does have a good Johnny Depp performance. I'll say that, but it's true. The beach still holds up because there are those those boil moments that can really make a movie the sort of propulsion can really take effect. Mm-hmm. Some some really great soundtrack choices. The the Moby song I really like as they get to see the beach. I think the still the thing that holds up for the most part is the cinematography and just the sort of grab bag. Yeah, Darius Kanji who shot Seven and Panic Room. Uh, for David Fincher, I think it's really interesting. This movie came right before Panic Room for him, and they both do use all kinds of uh, a bag of tricks in terms of digital trickery to make the camera go places it can't normally go or to give you a really great sort of sped-up shot. There's a lot of stylish uh, sort of thrown-in style in this movie that keeps it going. Right. Not, ne- not necessarily for any other reason than sort of hollow style, you know, which, yeah. which is unfortunate because the movie sort of thinks it's making a more deep point than, than it ultimately is. I realize. Right. Yeah. yeah. The movie, I, I forgot how sort of like 
how dopey and on the yeah. nose the movie is. Mm-hmm. Like, they, mm-hmm. when he gets to Thailand, um, so our, our main character, who I think in the novel is British. He uh, is. I'm 50 pages in, and he is uh, already a much different character. than. than so Richard, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, it, it was funny because I, I mentioned its sort of kinship with Fight Club, put out by the same studio, like, mm-hmm. you know, a few months apart from each other. Like, I... I, I just felt like they were kind of associated with each other. Yeah. And I think 20th Century Fox got kind of gun shy after Fight Club underperformed and was sort of like ripped apart by mm-hmm. some critics. And um, it just seemed like they kind of like shooed this movie through theaters as fast as possible because mm-hmm. it didn't do well. Also got did much worse with critics and audiences um, and definitely has not gotten the second life on DVD and Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting because I, I felt they were associated in my mind. And then hearing his kind of like dead, um, kind of dead voice narration, I was like, Oh, this is totally Edward Norton's narration. And I know they weren't like ripping that off cause they were so close together in terms of production that it's like, there's no way one was lifting from the other. Yeah. But it was like the kind of anti-capitalist sort of circa, circa the best Radiohead album concerns, <laughs> you know, being, put through the malay like a particularly american malaise through you know the narrator's voice i was like oh this is super like fight club but the it didn't have the the same sense of i don't like like we were saying with the earlier movies this episode the authorial voice you know what i mean and the sense of immersion the way fight club does yeah it was so like the the on the nose stuff i'm talking about is when he first gets to thailand he's checking into his hostel and they're playing Apocalypse Now in like in the in the theater, and it's just like Jesus Christ! How like this is clearly going to be a Heart of Darkness movie, yeah. you know? Which uh, it should be noted that it it is referenced. Apocalypse Now is referenced, and I'm only fifty pages in. I think it's been on at least five or six pages already as a reference. So it's in the book, but okay. the way it is put in the film doesn't matter that it was in the book. It's it's it. I'm with you. It's a it's not a good choice. It's not a good set of expectations to give the audience either uh, no, no, because Apocalypse it, Now goes off the rails, but does it so well, I think. You right, know? <laughs> right. And like it's sort of to illustrate that like you get all of these people who claim they want a unique experience being tourists. They want They want to go to this exotic locale and experience something they've never ex- experienced before. But ultimately, they just want the comforts of consumerism and capitalism. And so he shows all these people just sitting and watching TV, but what they're watching is apocalypse now. Like that's a little unusual. I don't think (laughs) I would go to a foreign country and be comforted by apocalypse now playing in my hostel. Like that's pretty weird. That's a pretty artsy group of people to be criticizing. It's forced. It's definitely forced. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Boyle is also a, a huge fan of, of apocalypse now. So I think he, this in many ways feels like him trying to do his, his take on a heart of darkness and, you know, story since apocalypse now was adapted from heart of darkness. It's all there, but yeah, really on the nose and on the nose, but also completely out of the blue and random and not fitting really at all. So uh, it's a troublesome aspect of this movie. I also have a huge, uh, or I'm really curiously what you think, because I had a, a distinct change of how I feel about the DiCaprio character now as I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always realized he was definitely uh, not a, he was an anti-hero at best when I first saw this movie. Right. I watch it now and he's just a complete, like he's a complete douchebag. 
Yeah, he's just <laughs> completely unlikable. And I know that we oftentimes will be on the side of like movies that are driven by anti-heroes because yes. it's like, well, there's still an understanding to be gleaned from spending time with people that you don't necessarily like, you know, because right. maybe it's aspects of those characters you don't like or something that you don't like about yourself. There's something kind of, you know, important about investigating those feelings of discomfort about identifying with an anti-hero or somebody you don't like. But right. this was understanding all that and also understanding something we talked about, uh, I think off, off mic the last time was like, um, identifying, a discomfort with an era where you're like, Oh, that movie just feels so nineties, you know? And being like, well, over time, that's going to be something that you find charming about it. So why don't you just not use that as a kind of critical cop out? Mm -hmm. So like having that aspect with this movie where it's like, I understand you should be patient with movies where you don't align with the main character. I understand that you shouldn't be put off by the sort of totems and tendencies of an era that we're no longer part of. It was so fucking hard to deal with watching this movie this time. <laughs> like <laughs> the music, I mean you mentioned the Moby song which I think works perfectly. Some of the music caused me to wince so yeah. hard and just like the clothing and the attitudes and the internet cafes. I was just like, "Oh god, this is so hard to look at. Like yeah. this sensibility is so hard to take in." And, like, I've never heard Leonardo DiCaprio scream so much in a fucking movie before. Yeah, it's performance can be grating at times. And it's in, it's in those choices he makes to scream at times. Like, before they <laughs> decide to jump off the waterfall. Like, that, that whole scene where he gets in an argument with right. the French guy. Like, it's so such an aggressive, like, choice as an actor. It, it It's like, it felt odd to me at the time when I first saw this. But now it just feels like a glaring, like, error. And, like, why use that take? Why... Why let him do that? It's an odd choice as an actor. It doesn't really work in the scene. Where he screams like, that is just an asshole move. Exactly. That, yeah, suggestion. Oh, asshole suggestion. so over the top. He, he does that, you know, throughout the movie. There, there's even a moment where he hisses like a, like a, like a okay. jungle cat. <laughs> I think, can we get into this section of the movie, please? Yes. yes. All right. Oh, hold so, on. You mean the, like, losing his mind section of the movie? Absolutely. Yeah, because I used to love this point, and this is now my biggest issue with the movie. Yeah, completely. Okay, so basically we follow the trajectory of a paradise being lost where these three tourists find this like perfect, idyllic beach and this community that's also found it. And so they get brought into this utopian society that's living on the far side of a secret island, the other half being occupied by that, you know, by that, those marijuana farmers who you know are armed and they will leave them alone as long as they don't infringe on their territory. Fine. All that's out of the way. So this section that we're talking about is where everything's starting to fall apart. Richard has you know basically brought corruption to their idyllic utopian beach. And so this section, he's forced to keep an eye on a group of tourists who he has given a map to earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. And so... Like this whole section where he's he's apart from his group, he's slowly starting to lose touch with everybody. This would make perfect like this would work in a book because it, the book can take time. Mm-hmm. It can sort of explore the ideas at work where he's staring at basically what he hates. He's like waiting for these tourists to potentially leave or come to the island and like him just watching them over time and identifying what he like hates about culture, what he's gotten away from. 
Like that makes sense in long flowing prose and descriptive text. And you also can take a leap with a character losing his, his grip because you're not watching the face of an actual person who has to go from hissing out of complete madness into a, oh God, what have I done look? Which like, <laughs> if anybody, Leonardo DiCaprio is up to the task. Like he's somebody, <clears throat> he's an incredibly gifted actor you know, he can go to all these different places. And, like, that moment is really, like, I feel for him as a performer. Yeah. Because it's just, like, the movie doesn't build that transition at all. It just no, sort of, like, throws you into it, assumes, ah, you'll you'll get there. Don't worry about it. And it's just like, oh, this is why this doesn't work as a as a story in the cinematic sense that it, it would work as a novel where yeah, it could yeah. take its time and explore these things as ideas, as opposed to dramatic action. It's so rushed through at the end. It's so thrown together and feels incomplete and not developed at all. And then it's tossed aside when it needs to, to get to the end of the movie. It's, it's really, really a mess. I mean, there were moments I remember. Def- I re- used to really love the video game section where he imagines he's in a video. <laughs> That's just pretty tedious now. Yeah. The the whole idea. What he starts eating like hallucinogenic like caterpillars or something in the. In Is the that movie. okay? I didn't get that. Maybe well, we'll explain it when you get to that point in it. Yeah, maybe it will. Exactly. I mean, I'm just guessing because he eats a caterpillar and then looks up and everything you know starts to bend and you know he starts seeing things. I just. I, I, I imagine that that was what was going on in the movie. I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. It's I, the, it. I think what uh, beyond DiCaprio's, I, I think pretty messy performance in this movie. Actually, I just think he's miscast because I actually would love, I would have loved to have seen what Ewan McGregor would have done with this character. Cause I actually think it's pretty hard to get him out of my mind. Now seeing this movie recently, I would have loved to have seen what he would have done at that time with, with this character for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like it's it's unfortunate because also like, you know, the last kind of Paradise Lost section of the movie that, you know, the the showdown basically that the entire kind of point of the film hinges on, you know, in the book could be described in paragraphs, whereas like it's a, it's on the shoulders of Leonardo DiCaprio to give this like kind of belligerent speech staring down the barrel of a gun about what this moment means. And it's just like. This doesn't make this coming from this character who has to make this split second switch from being pleading for his life in a kind of cowardly, pathetically American way to being like, this is what you've brought upon yourself. Like, Like, how did you make that switch from peeing your cargo pants to just being (laughs) like Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now? Yeah, yeah. Caterpillar you ate? Maybe it was those hallucinogenic caterpillars will do that. I hear. Yeah, I, it was. Yeah, it was interesting because like I walked away or slumped in the couch, which I, <laughs> and I was just like, wow, that didn't it didn't hold up. Mm-hmm. But then days later, I'm kind of like, but it's still weirdly endearing. Yeah, like, it because I like Danny Boyle as a filmmaker, and I like it. I like what the movie is attempting to explore, even if it's completely dopey and on the nose and isn't like dramatically um on point ultimately yeah i think uh i'm i kind of have a new theory as to what boyle might have tried to be doing but i just still even don't think that was successfully done like successfully like rendered in the movie is by the 
hear me out on this idea. DiCaprio, it goes from a British lead character. Danny Boyle is British, I believe, or he, is he Scottish? Uh, he, I think he's British. He's, he's British, yeah. So, okay, he switches the, the main character to an American movie star. The movie be, then becomes, like, because of the douchiness of his character, and really, DiCaprio is the the bad guy in this movie. Like, he is essentially the downfall. It's right. not that it's not the movie keeps trying to say that like, oh, paradise can't last forever. You know, human nature, all these things, nature itself will intrude in that. You know, there's like a shark attack that's really gruesome and, you know, invades their idyllic, peaceful life. But really, DiCaprio is single handedly fucks all this up. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there was a commentary, because like I said, I'm only 50 pages in the book and it's he's already a much different character. He's not a jerk. And he also doesn't hook up with the French girl in the book, as I understand. Right. So I think maybe that if if Boyle had wanted to do this, it didn't feel completely like finished. But I, I feel like he was almost making a commentary on like an American hubris of like, I can travel and he'll be the one that wants to take, take, take. Like, I want this French girl and then I'll sleep with other women. I just want more experience to the point where it like drives him, you know, very kind of silly in a silly way insane and like it's the downfall it's like the americans fault you know and uh i just wonder if there was a a a sort of an attempt at that that just wasn't fully accomplished i don't know well i just i wonder if like the the uneasy kind of uh negotiation between you know a filmmaker and a giant studio yeah financing a movie if like you have an anti-hero who's essentially the catalyst that you know brings upon everything bad that happens yeah. to everyone else in the movie like it still relies on him being like being the hero part of the of the anti-hero too mm-hmm. and so it's this uneasy kind of like mixture where it's like his transitions are too 180 mm-hmm. they're just like they're too they're too much you can't follow them like as being dramatically invested in the movie. You're just like, no, that's just, how did he go from that to that? What? Like what's happening? Like, these turns make zero sense. Yeah. It all and just so, feels like eight, like tonally mismatched and not, <clears throat> not all, not fit the opposite of ex machina. It's not all fitting together. It's like busting apart and just one does not fit with the other at all. Yeah. And so even though it's, it was like a deliberate choice to make him unlikable, it still is needing him to be the voice that kind of, guides the movie towards its um towards its message in a weird way and it's yeah. like uh, this doesn't like he's he's kind of a nightmare and he's what's wrong but he delivers the message at the end with like a you know a gentle smile it's yeah like, he also uh, gets he also gets a quasi happy ending you know like i think that's yeah. where the the sort of last the penultimate scene in the internet cafe that you mentioned is is sort of, I think, Boyle's tendency to go for, because he's so earnest as a filmmaker, it's like Slumdog Millionaire is like much worse for this sort of thing where it, it mm. piles on bad, 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 and then still wants you to feel hopeful and good at the end in a bullshit right. fantasy way. And he tries to go for that in the beach where I think a better ending would have been something more dark and ambiguous because all I thought about uh, the sort of, the like the final stamp in it for me uh, with how annoyed I was with the total douchebaggery of the the DiCaprio character in this movie is he he's the result of them all leaving this paradise right everybody's lives are now totally changed they've got to leave this island and what do they do they all float back right on like a floating like raft you know mm-hmm. 
DiCaprio is just sitting in the middle of it while all the other people are paddling across, like, I don't know. It was like this little moment in the movie where I was like, he should, why, why is he not out there paddling that thing? Like they should all make him as like punishment. <laughs> it yeah, really, what, what should have happened was that like, he's doing that. He's kind of on his floating throne. <laughs> And then they should have seen the shark, which was alluded to several times, and it kind of pays off. Yeah. You know, in terms of like a shark attack happening three quarters of the way into the movie. Mm-hmm. But they should have been like, he should have just been like, you know what, guys? And just given himself as a sacrifice and just floated <laughs> out. And then they just, they all kind of like look back at him floating away. And then that's just the end of the movie. Yeah, it's the open water ending, dude. You just cue the movie sh- song. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, dude. And you just sink to the bottom. Let the sharks take you. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the only justifiable conclusion for a character who does that. Like, it's just it's one of those moments where it felt like the movie didn't know what to do, it, and it made me realize like, no, they're not really judging him in the way that I think you should be. It's not like you need to make it clear what a douchebag he is. Like, we can see that, but because it's Leonardo DiCaprio, because it's a studio movie, it doesn't feel confident in really, you know, showing us the the real like consequences for the behavior he pulls off in this movie well, which is which yeah. is pretty reprehensible yeah i think that like having having the success that train spotting had you know and and be, being given like a a huge studio movie like i i don't think anyone involved in the deal really knew what they wanted to accomplish cuz he you know danny boyle is ultimately going to have to make a lot of sacrifices in order to get a big budget mass marketed movie out there. Mm-hmm. And then the, the same with the studio, if they're handing it to a very distinct director, but ultimately it was just like, no one knew what they were making. And so yeah. it just kind of ended up being a mildly critical movie that whose tone was just all over the place and just felt deeply 2000. <laughs> it ultimately, does. Which is a 2000 year that, not quite comfortable revisiting, I guess. I guess not. I guess not. So there you have it, man. Our, I think that's our first full-on, like, you know, we have retroactively changed our minds on a movie. So I, I just think it makes this segment that much more exciting to see how it's going to continue to, you know, change our feelings or, you know, evolve our feelings on a film. Because, yeah, I, we are pretty much in lockstep, man. Like, I, I, um, I thought I was... I w- I thought I still loved this movie, and, and I definitely can say it's a, it's a very flawed, flawed movie. I will, I will keep it on my DVD shelf. I'll put it that way, but I don't think I'm going to like, you know, you own it. it and you hadn't watched it in that long. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I, I do. own. I, I'm not going to sell the DVD. I'll put it that way, but I definitely okay. gave it, it. It crossed my mind as I was about halfway into the movie last night. So. Did you watch it alone? I did. I did. Yeah. 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 I watched so. it with company company hated it. Yeah. There you go. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe we were, you know, misguided or, you know, I can just think back to the things that, I let certain things go, I guess, at the time, and now they just seem much more glaring, uh, glaring flaws that are that are there. I can't deny. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So nuts. Um, yeah. So hold up on that, I guess. Yeah. Hold <laughs> up. Meeny, 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 meeny. Meeny, 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 meeny. Meeny, 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 meeny. Hold up. Wait a minute. Now just wait. Now, Karen, picture this, okay? You and I, we're married, going on 35. We have all the things that we want in life. We have two cars, two kids, two dogs. Only we have a shitload of bills. Now, you're struggling. Why am I the one who's struggling? This is hypothetical, for Christ's sake. Okay, now, you're struggling. I just got laid off. 
We can't make the mortgage payments on our home, and it's only a matter of time before the bank moves in and takes everything we've invested in. Now, what would you do if you were in this kind of a situation? I suppose I, w I would do whatever I had to do to survive. Exactly. Only people are getting screwed left and right, and no one is doing anything about it. Well, I made a decision to do something. I discovered a way to temporarily screw the system. Oh, really? How? I bond and burn their mortgage documents. Microfilm, written documentation, all of it. Are you out of your mind? Karen, I have never felt so in control in my life before today. This segment, Hold Up, if you don't already know, is where we take movies that have stuck with us, that we have either loved or have just kind of hung in our memory for a long time, that we need to reconcile with it in some way. Movies that are, you know, oftentimes the ones we've chosen have been critically questionable. And so <laughs> we bring them to each other to act as critical counterpoints to discuss like what it is about these movies that have like a lasting impression. Like, why do we have this conflicted relationship with them? And this one, I prefaced it last episode by saying like, I cannot argue this is a good movie. Like by all intents and purposes, this might be a very bad movie, but it for some reason stuck with me and rewatching it. I mean, we obviously rewatched or we watched them separately. You know, you're in a different state, but it was just like, a lot of these movies I've seen several times, you know, like I've, I've seen Ford Fairlane countless amounts of times. I've seen the hitcher several times. So they've kind of come with me on my journey through life, but the ones that I haven't seen a great deal, but I still think of are like a room you haven't been in in years when you rewatch them. And yes. all of a sudden this flood of stuff comes back. <laughs> so this is a real kind of tender thing. I'm, <laughs> I invited you to rewatch. It was like, Hey, come into my family room from the house I grew up in, in Cupertino, <laughs> California. What? Uh, what are we doing here? I, I don't know. I just wanted you to know that I watched this movie when I was a kid. <laughs> so it's like creepy and intimate that we're, we're watching this, this movie together. So this movie, written, directed, and starring Emilio Estevez, which at that point he was one of the, if not the youngest person to be like that triple threat of writer, director, actor. Mm -hmm. He was 23 when this movie was made. He was, I wouldn't even say like the biggest, he, not at all. He wasn't the biggest young star. Like I could see Tom Cruise getting this deal in the eighties. Cause this movie came out in late 1986. Mm -hmm. And so he, Emilio Estevez was coming off breakfast club. That was then this is now he was in the outsider. So he was like a, he was in St. Elmo's fire. He was a well-known actor, but like he didn't have, he wasn't a Tom Cruise necessarily. And so he got this deal to make this movie through a joint effort of Canon pictures, which we recently watched a documentary about mm -hmm. their, their efforts um, and Warner brothers who is distributing Canon films that year. And so they, they had grouped together for efforts like, Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yes. Which is similarly crazy. Like you watch it and you're like, what the fuck? How, how did this happen? This movie. <laughs> and so I can see Canon being just this like engine of constant output being like, Oh yeah, let, let Emilio Estevez make his movie. Go ahead. What does he want to make? He wants to make a movie about a guy who doesn't know what to do with his life. So he decides to burn people's mortgages in the, in the bank. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. And so like, <laughs> Emilio Estevez made this very earnest movie about a guy who after, you know, a guy from privilege, you know, mm -hmm. to, to a certain extent, has a reckless night, has stolen a car, 
crashes the car, gets in trouble, gets a felony for drunk driving and um, Grand Theft Auto. And his life is kind of off course at that point. He's in this like nether world where he doesn't he can't really pursue a career because nobody wants a felon. And he doesn't know what to do. So the only world that's kind of beckoning to him is a life of crime. But he doesn't know how to take on a life of crime. And this section of the movie where he's he's like considering, like, what kind of criminal is he going to be? I was like, does this movie want to be a satire? Because <laughs> it like it kind of had it had that on the nose earnestness that like if it took it a little further, the movie could be kind of hilarious. This mm-hmm. person of privilege who doesn't know what to do with their life that just sort of happenstantially is just like, no, I'll become a criminal, you know? And, <laughs> but he becomes kind of a Robin hood, noble person who starts to see that there are people who are in dire straits, whose houses are being foreclosed on. And he decides to take action by burning their mortgage documents, which I guess nowadays that wouldn't really be the case since everything's online. I was going to say this movie is adorably like quaint and old fashioned now, you know, yeah. because you couldn't yeah, do like, the same plot. Now it would have to be a hacker plot or something right which would be so boring to watch so boring um, yeah but um yeah it's like bill and ted's excellent adventure like do they get in a phone booth still no <laughs> what, are, what are phone booths anyway moving on next movie um so he's involved with demi moore who he like uh, inadvertently takes her you know like as an accomplice through this crime spree of like, burning these mortgage records and um so this movie, <laughs> when I saw it as a child, even like there was, there's plenty I didn't notice. I didn't notice how clumsily it was performed. Didn't oh, notice how clumsily it was like written at times, how heavy handed it was because ultimately like halfway through the movie, I was dramatically invested in it as, as a kid even. And then it concludes PS, this is going to be a spoiler, a brutal spoiler filled episode of wisdom which since no one is talking about on the internet no one will care that we're spoiling this movie <laughs> but when it concludes oh, like boy. it was so upsetting to me i was just like what what the what I, no, no that didn't just happen like as a child i knew even though i hadn't heard the rule that you can never end a movie with and then i woke up <laughs> this movie seemingly ended with and then he woke up what <laughs> Oh, it's so bad. And so so the movie builds and becomes like, I think in its last act, becomes like the most successful at what it's trying to do. It becomes dramatically involving. There's like, like the performances become a little bit, like they become grounded. There's something at stake. It's like the best filmmaking in the film mm-hmm. is this section. It's like basically two scenes to me that like really, really still work. Um, and then both of the main characters are gunned down and he wakes up in his bathtub, which is where the movie starts and it's all a dream. So like, yeah, is it, or does heaven have bathrooms? (laughs) Can't tell. So, so tell, just, just walk me through Mm -hmm. your experience of like early into the movie. Like where you just like, this is just a bad movie or how did you feel like watching it from the beginning? Right on. I, I think, this movie struggles in these. I think the script is the big, the big, big issue with this movie, mm-hmm. and it, it's pretty apparent like right away. Um, mm-hmm. uh, performances, voiceover narrative, yeah, like, and also like a sort of quasi tough guy. Like he's sort of he's doing a 
a, like a an Emilio Estevez take on like a hard-boiled type of narration. It was five years ago, graduation night, drunk with the guys, a souped-up firebird, T-top, parked on the street. Not mine, but I made it mine. Yes, sir. Slid behind the wheel. It didn't seem like the car was going faster than my head when we ripped through a guardrail. How the hell did I think I was going to get out of this one? That wasn't working and immediately sort of like sets the stage for something that's just sort of like, like I said, the script is not, is is like the big downfall. For me, the script feels like it's a first pass and that Emilio Estevez just made the first thing that he like kind of scribbled down on paper and didn't feel like it had many people looking at it because the dialogue's really clunky. Like there's this, it's sort of set up that the Milo Astavis character is, is I took him as sort of a douchey like boyfriend to Demi Moore. Like mm-hmm. he, he makes uh, one of the first, uh, the first image you see of Demi Moore in this movie is over the credits. And it's a picture where he's holding her boobs in a shot. And it's like, that's mm-hmm. kind of a weird Why'd they show that picture? And then five minutes later, he sees her at work and he comments on, he's like, well, you have really nice boot. It's just like, like that seems to be where the only focus was for this character. So it's like, it's setting him up to be not a very good boyfriend yet. She just sort of tags along with him in a way that made no sense to me. So I struggled with like, why are things happening in this movie? You know? Uh, yeah. With a lot of it. Like the problem for me in the beginning was like motivation. Like, I understand right. that he's feeling downtrodden. I've been in that position where you can't find a job. You know, I think a lot of people today can relate to that. You know, like. Did you flirt with crime? <laughs> I never flirted with crime. But like, you know, just that that idea of like you're trying to break into a world you don't even know if you really want. Like, I, I didn't really want to be in the business world or whatever that means. Right. But yet I found yeah. myself desperately trying to like please these people just to get an interview. And I like I understood that plight from Emilio Estevez. But. For him to think like the only turn he could take is this like Robin Hood esque mortgage burning burning crime spree just doesn't I, I don't get how he took that leap. The movie doesn't really do me any favors in helping me understand how he took that leap other than some like really weak like news reports that happen around the same time. I, I don't know. Does it help that it was all a dream though? <laughs> well, I mean, that it was all dream logic that it was, he was I, operating under. I, I guess if you do think of it like that, I guess it sort of does work. But yet if you're at all invested in the finale or, or like the reality of the situation, it, it feels like a real cheat to, so the, it's like it, maybe it does work the, in that. <laughs> it, it can't work either way, basically. Right. It's an absolute cheat. It's the ultimate cheat. Yeah. And it's just like they teach you that in like not only in, uh, of course, screenwriting, but like storytelling. Like it can ne- you can never start with it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> a shot rang out or and then I woke up. Yeah. And just to like he has to know that the people I mean, granted, like Canon was a real reckless organization. <laughs> yeah. But still, there had to be people he had to answer to in terms of like the script. And so it's just like to to go into a situation with sophisticated people that know you can never do this. There had like I, in thinking about the movie again, I was like, well, was there an ultimate like kind of punk statement that was like, no, we're doing this because fuck it, because like 
him dying at the end of it isn't the true doom. The doom is him waking up to have to relive the same dilemma over and over again. Mm. And like thinking about that, I was like, is that, hmm, let me, let me watch this movie with that in mind <laughs> that he's waking up for this like doomed continuum of like, I'll never, like there is no American dream. The nightmare is that you wake up into the same kind of like the same predicament cycle. over yeah. and over again. Yeah. The same cycle. And so like, I rewatching and I was like, but that's not clear. Like that's not when he wakes up, he's just in his bathtub again, and it's just like, huh? What? Uh, what the fuck? And so like, <laughs> my nightmare, my American nightmare is that I never get closure with this goddamn movie. <laughs> that like, again, like I was watching it yesterday. I wasn't, I hadn't seen it since I was little, and I was just like, or not little, but like, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I was just like, all right. This movie isn't operating the way it probably did when I was a kid, fine. But like when it hits that last stride where there's a there's a scene, I'll point it out. If cuz if it didn't work for you, that's fine. I won't I won't get upset, Eric. Don't worry about it. Okay. But like <laughs> they're they're nearing the end of their run. They're sort of like resolving themselves to just like trying to settle in Canada at that point. They're in a a convenience store. Yeah, in Minnesota. Yeah, and it totally. Does that feel familiar for you? It did. I liked it. And so a sheriff wanders in and like Demi Moore is in the store. Emilio Estevez is watching her from their, their getaway car. She's uh, heating up dinner for them in a, in a really archaic microwave. Um, and uh, cause that's how they roll in Minnesota apparently. And so um, the sheriff wanders in and the, the store clerk says evening sheriff. And the whole, like the whole thing tightens Demi Moore, like freezes and her eyes kind of widen and like from then on, it's the best executed sequence in the movie. Like it's edited perfectly, and he had um, Michael Kahn was the editor who edited all of the Indiana Jones movies, and so like he was he's an expert editor. He knows what he's doing, and um, so like this sequence where like the sheriff like all of a sudden realizes Emilio Estevez is like you know sweating in the car, wanting her to just get out of there. His eyes shift, and it's just like cut together, like so perfectly. And then she ends up killing him. And like all, all the while, Emilio Estevez is like running in slow motion to get into the, the community store. From your silence, I can maybe sense <laughs> the scene wasn't as impressive to you. I, I the slow mo on Demi Moore's face, just I don't know, man. <sighs> I mean, she like I think her in that last section, she gets shot in a schoolyard. Mm-hmm. And later I was like, oh, I was I was dramatically reinvested in the movie all over again. I love like, her I last line. Come. Her last line, uh, the way he kissed me, I know he's not coming back. Yes, dude. Think of the brutal. Le- it's oh, my. It's great. If the movie could have operated on that level of like legit tragedy to, to this, yeah. you know, to this uh, to the situation for these characters, man, that ending would be so great if it ended with him fucking dying. But of course, that is undermined, you know, like everything is undermined in this movie. So what do you like? Okay. So, so you're, you're, you're not as dramatically invested as I was. Um, I like like, some of the stunts at the end. There was a good car. Yes. That was incredible to me. And to watch it the same day that I watched Fury road (laughs) to have like this weird, it's like three car crashes, but I was just like, Oh, Oh, the whole time. And it was just like, Oh, this is how movies used to work. You know what I mean? They would give you, a kind of slow build. And then when something would happen, it would really have an impact. You know what I mean? Even in a bad movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, so this move, this, this film is 
not working for you, but it, you saw if it went a certain way that like it could have worked a little better, maybe not entirely, but worked better. So like the ending, like was it test screened and that they were just like, it doesn't work that you die, can't die. They couldn't do reshoots because they didn't have any money. And so it's just like, eh, he wakes up. Oh, great. That fixes it. What? Like that basically cements the movie as like that, that doesn't work. Yeah. And like, and what kind of compelled me to discuss this movie, you know, on top of it, just sort of like bothering me as like a splinter, you know, (laughs) all these years is that like, there's no real discussion of it anywhere. Like Emilio Estevez doesn't talk about it. Like he's like, Oh, I had a lot to learn back then. I think that's the only thing I've said. I've seen that he's said about the movie on IMDb Uh, trivia. They, they claim that he dismisses this movie as a vanity project. So I'm not sure if that's legit because it's IMDb, but um, I could see that, you know, it, but it's also not, this like, movie's not available. You can't find it. You can find it on Warner Home Archive DVD, I think, or on DVD. Yeah, which they, if you request it, they'll send you a DVD R, is what I understand. I have it on videotape because <laughs> I was like, I want this as a time capsule of something that really always bothered me as a kid. <laughs> um, so how did did you did you rent the DVD-R from I somewhere? I did, yeah. They had it at our uh, our local store here, Movie Madness. So some, if you're in a cool enough city with a cool enough video store, you might find this. Yeah, but just the fact that like every movie, no matter how obscure, even yeah. the most obscure, like is discussed somewhere. So the fact that this wasn't, I go into Rotten Tomatoes and it's just like there's there's no real legit critics that have reviewed it. Um, it's mostly just people like, meh, Estevez, boring. You're like, well, okay, thanks. Thanks, guy. <laughs> thanks, guy from somewhere. But like, it that just was interesting to me. This movie existed on a scale where it came out theatrically. It like was released on video, did, you know, like, I, that's how I saw it. I saw it on video initially. And, you know, I mean, there were, there were people renting it. So it's just like, how is this not discussed at all, ever? Well, especially with like, all the, you know, shit, what, the last five years of our economy or even longer than that? Like, this movie yes. actually has ideas. It's surprising, if nothing else, Joe, that this movie never came up in any lists about, like, you know, 20 movies that reflect our current economic, you know, like, these list articles come out every day on various movies. Yeah, BuzzFeed, sites. where the fuck are you when yeah. we need to mention in one of your lists, you assholes? <laughs> it, it, it is strange, like... You, you would think that this would have been brought up because it, it is oddly prescient now uh, in in those sort of aspects of, like, not being able to get ahead, even if you are a privileged, like, it's sort of interesting that Emilio Estevez comes from a, a looks like a good upbringing in this movie. He's, like, in a nice suburb mm-hmm. of uh, California and looks like a fairly well-off kid with all the opportunities. And it's, like, that whole idea, it's sort of the idea that the, um, the movie The Lookout took on with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt where, you know, you commit this mm-hmm. one act and he committed a car crash and killed some people h- himself in that movie. And it always stays with you and you can never, you know, you can never get ahead in this business world or in this, you know, in this corporatized world. Like there's a lot of ideas that people can still relate to in this movie. But yet, yeah, it's just it, it makes me wonder if Emilio Estevez had enough power to sort of bury it because, if he's if he's ashamed or just doesn't look back fondly on this movie, maybe he'd rather it just be kept quiet. I, I, it makes you wonder how 
some movies like this can be just totally lost and not talked about. Other than it's kind of like unacceptable ending, or is it? Um, <laughs> it doesn't have that kind of like that factor that makes a whoa, this movie's crazy, like crazy, like psychotically bad or yeah. just psychotic off. It doesn't have that kind of like bug-eyed effect that people are kind of pursuing more and more now with revival cinema of like, whoa, who knew about this movie starring, you know, O.J. Simpson? Like, oh, wow, this is crazy. I didn't know this existed. (laughs) So it doesn't have that wow factor and that bizarro world factor. And so there's, there's nothing really sensational about it. It did get a revival screening at the New Beverly before I lived here. And I was always like, what? Who besides me cares about wisdom? What? This is showing? And this was like Two or three years ago, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Damn, you just missed your time, dude. <laughs> yeah, totally. I could have stood up and be like, "What? What? What? Guys, it's I've I've waited twenty years for this. Like, how? What's with this fucking ending? Are you as confused uh, as I am? <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Um, I would. I, the only way to really know is to like. It would be so fascinating. Like, somebody has to interview Emilio Estevez and ask him about this, you know. But it's like it'll never come up, and it's not so bad that you have to see it, right? You you basically pointed right. that out. It's not so bizarrely bad or or such a strange movie that like it demands to be, um, to be re to be like reevaluated or seen again or unearthed. And it's definitely not a good enough movie to warrant like us being like, this is a classic that you, that you, you know, it's like a must see. So it does sort of exist in this weird in between world, which is the largest, probably the largest crop of movies exist in that in between world of like, eh, it's just sort of like is forgotten. You know, it's that odd world of the forgotten movie. And I'm with you though. Like I, I think it's a pretty flawed movie, but Man, it's odd that with all the elements in place that this is one of those forgotten movies. That's very strange to me. And beyond the ending, I think that seems like that's what's most uh, troubling or weird to you, maybe? Yeah, you know, because like I didn't at the time I didn't know that the cinematographer was the guy that shot The Terminator. I didn't <laughs> know who the editor was. Danny I, Elfman you know, Dan- did the score. Danny Elfman was like that was one of his first scores, I believe, mm-hmm. you know, and like it's really it's a dominant score like it's definitely like an unsubtle kind of like forceful score but i it's really effective and sort of like interesting to hear how he got to where he did with like Tim Burton movies from this score, you know, Definitely. which was still very Oingo Boingo-y. <laughs> yes. But I, I actually, the score is one of the things I like the most about this movie, like right from the beginning too. the, and in a way, once that sort of clunky narration started for me, the narr- it was sort of as good as the score is, it sort of elevated the movie at first to be better than it was. And then it just sort of made all the problems more, <laughs> obvious to me where it's like oh it's like such good talent involved in this movie and it's so clunky in in so many ways yeah this movie is oddly similar in some ways to your last hold up pick that you mentioned the the hitcher like the sort of odd like why does this woman go with this guy it makes a it she's built up as his girlfriend in this movie so it makes a little bit more sense than in the hitcher but like yeah there's these weird comparison points but um it's a road movie arguably yeah and honestly, I, here's the other thing I want to bring up. Did, did you, uh, maybe this is Emilio Estevez. He, he somehow gets this amazing opportunity as a 23 year old kid to fricking direct a movie, write and produce it. Do you think he had seen his dad's movie Badlands and thought maybe I can do a take on the lovers on the run type of movie? I mean, 
Maybe it it doesn't share any other elements to Badlands other than him, you know, no, and, and the crime element. But I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think he's he's that was maybe the start of his political leanings. So he's making this like he comes from this brat pack kind of world where he, he he's like you know he's maybe a rebel in some movies, um, and so he he can operate on that and sort of like kind of dabble a little bit in a, a movie with social commentary right loose very loosely you know but it was it was still there his next movie was a movie about um you know garbage men men at work brother i liked men at work. that was one of those movies when i was younger at like birthday parties sleepovers at friends you know houses and shit like i remember seeing that movie and thinking that and hudson hawk were like the funniest like awesome movies I could ever see. And yeah, I don't think I'll be using either of those as a hold up edition, <laughs> but, um, hold, I mean, Hudson Hawk would be a good one because it, I, I feel it actually like it would be. Yeah. It's interesting to watch comedy, like comedies standing the test of time has been like a discussion with a lot of people lately that I, I've just been like, okay, what are the timeless ones? And like Hudson Hawk was never argued as a great movie at all. In fact, it was the opposite. People thought it was like one of the worst movies the year it came out, but then it got kind of championed as this like cult favorite, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. And so I would, it would be interesting to watch yeah. that one. Um, but yeah, was wisdom. There's still that, irreconcilable ending that I, you know, I'm sorry. I I pulled you along into the frustration. It's okay. Because honestly, the ending confounded me and was so bad, but like, that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. You know, like it, it, in a (laughs) way it makes this movie at least chat worthy. Like I have a lot more to say about wisdom than I ever did about Avengers too. So I guess if nothing else, Joe, thank you for that. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Eric. Are we <laughs> yeah. jumping the gun a little bit and we, thanking we are, each other? We are jumping the gun. Let's uh, let's wrap up this episode then appropriately. We'll, we'll do proper thank yous here. I have to thank you, Joe, for not only getting me to see wisdom, but uh, just for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for coming into that weird room of my childhood with me, Eric. Thank you. Glad to be there. <laughs>